We, ha we have no idea when this is all going to come to a head, but when it does, it'll be a very different world. Hi, this is Mike Maloney, and I'm joined again by Adam Taggart. Adam received an email from a viewer a little while ago. The viewer's name is Don, and he's very, very concerned about the rapid growth in the national debt and wondering why nobody is reporting on this. And, you know, he's uh, um, uh, following the national debt clock. Anyway, uh, Adam, how are you doing? And thank you for joining me today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Mike. Um, I, I feel like I'm getting uh, my Christmas gifts early this year, uh, getting to be on with you so often recently. But yes, I did get this email from Don, um, and he's been tracking the national debt closely, as you, as you say. He noticed that on December 15th of last year, um, so just a little over a month and a half ago, the national debt clicked over to $29 trillion. Um, but he's been watching it closely since. And he noticed that uh, as of yesterday, February 2nd, 2022, the national debt went over 30 trillion. Um, so at this current rate, uh, it's going up at a pace of about $7 trillion annually. Um, and of course, if it's accelerating, it may be going higher than that. So, you know, as you said, Donna's wondering, hey, is anybody else watching this? Well, I know you've been watching this closely for a long time, Mike. So why don't you, uh, why don't you tell us both what you've you know, tracked in the past about it, but I know you've pulled up some recent charts that, that should be really interesting to walk folks through. Yeah, I put together a, a series of charts here, and we're just going to sort of do this very impromptu. I, I don't have any uh, like outline other than the charts. So we're, I'm going to make this up as we go. But uh, the, uh, you know, I've been watching this uh, since I started writing my book. So the national debt clock is something that I've been following very closely. I don't think Don has been viewing me for a decade. So he doesn't realize that uh, I, I was doing this. Uh, and in my book, I wrote uh, on March 16th, 2007, uh, Congress passed a bill to increase the ceiling on the national debt from 8.2 trillion to 9 trillion. <laughs> These seem like such small numbers now. They're like quaint numbers now, right. exactly. But as I'm writing this, uh, just a few months later, the debt is already 8.98 trillion. And Congress has uh, just approved the fifth increase on the debt ceiling in the last six years. Uh, raising it to 9.8 trillion. Uh, this 850 billion increase should last another few months, and it's entirely possible that the national debt could surpass 10 trillion by the end of 2008. Well, it was like 10.8 trillion, so <laughs> I was being very conservative here in my book. When I read my book, actually, you know, it sounded outrageous when I read it, and people are saying impossible. But everything turned out to be extremely conservative. Uh, when I uh, go to the next page in the book here, talking about the national debt, I talk about uh, unfunded liabilities. The national, uh, uh, you know, it's, uh, but that's the national debt. Uh, let me see. This means that a, a newborn baby in the US uh, comes into the world owing approximately $30,000 back then. But that's only what the baby owes for the, our reckless uh, deficit spending in the past, debt. What about the re reckless deficit spending promised to future generations like Social Security and Medicare? Then there's a section on unfunded liabilities. 
And Michael Hodges used to uh, run the Grandfather Economics Report, just a very concerned grandfather, and he would add up all of these things. And Hodges, it says in here, uh, Hodges has gone even further than analyzing debt as just uh, unfunded liabilities. Instead, he's taken all of the state and local and government debt, household debt, business sector debt, plus financial sector debt, and added them all together. How big is the problem? Uh, it was then 160 trillion. That was a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, so um, that it means that uh, a, even a newborn baby uh, is born into the world owing $550 million. And then it says, welcome to the world, kid. Here's the bill. <laughs> We shouldn't be laughing at this, but <laughs> well, I mean, it's just insane. And these are numbers. You know, I was writing this in uh, 2006 or or, or uh, 2007. Uh, so this, yeah, this is 2007. And then in, uh, I got a chance to revise some of the numbers just before the book came out. I think about April of 2008. And then you know, I uh, did a 2015 update, uh, and you know. It's interesting, uh, when we were filming Hidden Secrets of Money, I was standing under the national debt clock in New York City. Uh, at, and it's right above the IRS office there. <laughs> so here's the place you pay your taxes. And then this is how fast the government is spending it. And then, uh, and, and more, because it exceeds, this is the, the number up above that uh, IRS office was the amount that exceeds the cumulative amount that exceeded the amount that the IRS took in in our taxes. And so um, uh, anyway, uh, we had, <laughs> in the time it took to edit the episode, it, there was like three more, $3 trillion more added to the national debt. And we had to go in and Dan just, they did a brilliant job of it. I don't know if it was Aiden, it was probably Aiden that did this. But um, he pasted in the correct numbers over <laughs> the numbers that were now $3 trillion out of date in, in the time it took us to edit that episode. So I want to go to the, uh, total, the a chart that I just made of uh, federal debt, total public debt. But this chart, you know, um, it's um, uh, quarterly information in the last report is Q3 of last year. So they don't even have the 20, this, this wasn't up to $29 trillion yet, but it shows some of the insane growth. And if you look at the amount of this that is being funded by currency creation, you have to go to this chart that I gen generated called collateralization of currency. So when the Fed uh, buys a bond, they have to create the currency to buy it with, and that is collateralization of currency, memo items, total U.S. Treasury debt, agency debt, and mortgage-backed securities Wednesday level. So every Wednesday they report this. And what I find interesting when I look at, at this, there's a few other facts that stand out. Um, it's it's now eight point three seven nine trillion uh, is where this graph is at. And that is up 1,540% since 2009. 
And last year, the increase was almost 23%. So remember this 23% number. The other numbers, 1,540%, these are mind-boggling numbers. Uh, But 23% in a single year is a very important number, and I'll get to that in a minute. And uh, if if you look at the rate of growth, I went to a compounding calculator. uh, So you can ignore total interest and stuff like that. What I was interested in is what is the percent of annual growth. So from 2009, when it was 825 billion to today's almost 10 times more at uh, 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 8,377,000 more than 10 times more, I'm sorry, 377 trillion, 8 trillion, 377 billion. Uh, it's an effective uh, annual rate of 10.14% when it compounds out. Uh, so um, this is printing currency at that rate. So the uh, unless the economy grows at that rate or faster, this has to cause inflation. And we've had troubles with uh, GDP growth recently, as you know. Um, The uh, collateralization of currency, though, like I said, uh, in the just last year was 23%. So now I want to go to bank reserves um, because uh, reserves of depository institutions bank reserves. Uh, The Federal Reserve just gives it a more confusing name for everybody. And you can see that uh, from the 1960s, when it was about $20 billion was all that the banks needed to do all of their uh, interbank settlements and have the books still balance at the end of the day, and nobody was insolvent, uh, uh, to a peak of about $60 billion and then back down to about $40 billion before the 2008 crisis. And then you see this tremendous explosion. And that explosion uh, is now bank reserves, Uh, 4.188 trillion. Uh, So that is up (laughs) 10,370% since 2007. And you know, these are sad. I, I can't help but laugh because I'm laughing at the stupidity of these arrogant economists that are steering the Federal Reserve and the economy and making all these choices for us. It's not possible for something like this to end well. This has to end badly someday. We just don't know what day that's going to be. But the more out of control this gets, uh, the so it's up, they've, they've added 10,000% to it. It grew at 33.6% last year. So remember that figure. We've, we've now got uh, the collateralization of currency going up 23% last year, uh, the bank reserves going up 33.6%. Um, now, bank reserves are so that the banks can do all of this interbank settlement at the end of the day, because basically every bank is sort of broke. They've already all got to loan each other and, and borrow Uh, currency from each other at the end of the day. And uh, in 2019, uh, you remember the the repurchase agreements, the crisis in the repo markets. There was this giant crisis that was papered over. They wouldn't tell us what happened. Uh, Pamela and Russ uh, uh, Martinson have done a phenomenal job 
of investigative reporting on this. But uh, even when you use the, the base figure, I'll put up a, a chart of that here, uh, and the Fed uh, calculates this at about uh, four, you know, almost half a trillion. It's 445 billion, I think, is the, the peak there. But it's actually about 4.5 trillion when you look at the trades uh, on the New York Fed's, uh, you know, it, when, when it became publicly disclosed finally, which happened just toward the end of last year, it was publicly disclosed. But um, uh, so that got papered over. That means that with 10,000% more reserves than they had before the crisis of 08, uh, uh, the banks, this still isn't enough. The banks get into trouble where they're going to be insolvent and there's going to be a banking crisis and everything is going to freeze up and fall apart globally. Uh, and the Fed has to come in and add another, you know, so right now it's at four and a half trillion, but in that repo market, which is not covered by the bank reserves uh, chart, in that repo market, they temporarily added another four and a half trillion dollars worth of loans to the banks. Uh, it just shows you how fragile this system is becoming. So back to the national debt. Uh, the national debt uh, in Q1 of 2020 was 23.224 trillion. Uh, and uh, at the rate that it has been growing though, uh, since you know it rolled over to 29 trillion December 15th, exactly seven weeks later on uh, February 2nd, it hit 30 trillion. And uh, that is about three and a half percent difference divided by the seven weeks comes out to about uh, half a percent per week or 26% per year. Now, if you go to Wikipedia and you take a look at the definitions of hyperinflation, uh, hyperinflation, there's a bunch of definitions. There's uh, some definitions that say it has to exceed 50% per month. However, the International Accounting Standards Board says that hyperinflation happens when there's a cumulative inflation rate over a three-year period that exceeds 100%. <laughs> so what is that per year? Well, I went to a uh, compounding interest calculator to see what the, uh, the rate of growth would have to be. And it turns out to be 25.9% uh, annually compounds out to you know, $1 deposited at an annual interest rate of 25.9% ends up being $2, which is a 100% inflation uh, after three years. <laughs> and so uh, when it comes to uh, the national debt uh, we have already reached uh, hyperinflation of the national debt. The collateralization of that debt is 23% of increase uh, over the 26%. So the amount that is being funded by currency creation uh, is about 23%. Uh, so that was, uh, all, that was all of last year. But when you uh, annualize, this uh, half a percent per week, that's 26%. So you're getting close to the Federal Reserve funding all of this reckless spending 
by just currency creation. And that is exactly what causes hyperinflation. Have you got any comments on that? Wow. Um, Mike, I saw, I've been doing a lot of nodding as you've been speaking here. And, you know, I saw you assemble these charts before we hopped on here together to start recording. Um, that was just a masterful connecting of the dots that you have there. Um, I hadn't even come to the conclusion that you, you, you just pulled out there in terms of the hyperinflationary rate that we're at right now. That, I think, Mike, is maybe the best argument I've ever heard you make for why owning precious metals is so important right now from a wealth protection standpoint. I think the only other thing I'll, I'll note here, you know, looking at this chart of the federal debt, is that this is an exponential chart, right? Which means the growth actually accelerates over time. So even though yeah. we're at 25%-ish right now, uh, that is likely to increase further from here. Yes, it will. And so uh, lastly, I, you know, in my book, I got to update it in 2015. Uh, and it says, in the six and a half years since this book was uh, first published, the national debt has doubled. So this was back in 2015. U.S. financial liabilities exceeded household net worth in 2013. And Dr. Lawrence Kotlikoff uh, just testified to Congress that the fiscal gap is now, now stands at $210 trillion. And that was back then. Uh, so to close this, I just want to uh, say that, you know, this is a global phenomenon. I want to show this little uh, graph that was this little representation here that was uh, going around uh, about uh, total federal debt of all prime ministers. This is Canada. Canada used to be a pretty conservative country, but all of the prime ministers of Canada, uh, cumulatively, uh, they accumulated $634 billion uh, of debt, and Trudeau alone has managed to add another $659 billion. So this acceleration of debt globally is a big problem. It cannot possibly end well. There is, except for precious metals investors, but still, it's going to, when, when this all, we, ha we have no idea when this is all going to come to a head, but when it does, it'll be a very different world. So I want to thank you, Adam, for being here. My pleasure, Mike. Okay, we'll see you next time. There are people on there yeah. who are very pro-vaccine, who are anti-mandate, and there are people on there who have not been vaccinated but aren't anti-vax because they're just not these vaccines, um, right? And 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 I, I put myself in that in that camp. It's just, uh, yeah, no, it's not about that. But we're you know yeah. they're going to try and characterize it as anti-vax because because that that's a that's a that's a that's a dog whistle for for certain people in this story, right? As soon as you call it's like calling somebody a conspiracy theorist. It's just that you just get to paint them with that brush and. Well, well, it's thought, really, oh, you're one of it's those people. a <laughs> yeah. scent that is applied to you to keep others away, right? They're not going to convince you or me, right? Or anybody who knows us well. I mean, you know, am I an anti-vaxxer? I don't like these vaccines. I don't think they're wise. They're too narrowly focused. There are too many design failures built into them. They're too novel. We know too little. We know that the trials that were done to establish their safety were not high quality. They weren't large enough. They didn't go on long enough. There are problems here that a reasonable person can look at. Does that make me anti-vaccine? Well, let me tell you something. I have given I don't know how many lectures to my students about the glory 
of the mechanism by which vaccines work. I think it's one of the most beautiful stories I know. I'm extremely pro-vaccine in a general sense. I will tell you that watching pharma do this has made me concerned about adjuvants in a way that I wasn't before, right? I worry that there's something about the way we generate mm -hmm. vaccines now that we in the public need to know more about because it's having effects on our immune system that are more general than this basic vaccine mechanism, which I find so beautiful. But there's no way, I mean, you know, this, this Michael Gunner, this Australian guy who every so often says the quiet part out loud and we get to hear what the plan really is. You know who I'm talking about? I think he's from Northern Australia and he, mm -hmm. every so often he says something colorful about, you know, your, your personal vaccination status is irrelevant. If you are anti-mandates, you are anti-vax, you know, that guy, right? Yeah. So anyway, well, that that's guy, the yeah, plan, that guy. is that they're going to use that stigma against anybody who has any reservation about any vaccine or any measure that might be used to uh, to get people to take it. And the point is, anybody with any level of intelligence whatsoever knows that that is not a definition that one could reasonably apply. If anti-vaxxer is a thing, then surely somebody who is pro-vaccine and anti-mandate doesn't warrant it. Somebody who is pro-vaccine in principle but not pro-every single vaccine doesn't warrant it, right? It's obviously a trick. It's a magic trick. And frankly, it's not a very good one, right? It's not compelling. You have to want them to fool you if you're buying that stuff. And if that's you, you know, uh, you have to look yourself in the in the mirror. Yeah. It, and the whole, the whole, again, the whole mass formation idea is to get you focused down on stuff, right? It's, it's like hypnosis. The idea is to get you so that you're just focusing on this dot at the tip of your nose and you can't even resolve it's a dot. I mean, it's that, it's that hyper-focus. And so we've been hyper-focused for a long time on COVID deaths, right? And then you scratch at that a little bit and you find out, well, was that a death with or of? And, and next thing you know, we're battling over am I an anti-vax or a vax? And again, it's too narrow. The, the point is that if we'd had a a complete and authentic public health response, we would have said, hey, how are we doing in terms of all-cause mortality? You know, a lot of reasons people check off this mortal coil. How are we doing? And the answer is we're sucking at it, right? 2000 was bad, but 2001 was even worse. So by that objective measure, we can say whatever it is in to total, we're doing worse. And that's the conversation we should be having. So I worry every time it gets pulled back down to, you know, is it about these vaccines? You know, because that's, that's not... They, they are a component of what should be a very rich tapestry of, of things that we would have in our toolkit at, at the public health level. But it's always about that. And that's it. And, I, and, you know, we don't even have, Brett, at this point, I can't even point you to a single study that says, let's compare unvaccinated people to vaccinated people. But these people got early treatment, too. I don't know what that data looks like. I have strong suspicions. I can infer it from studies that don't, you know, that sort of triangulate on it. But we don't have the actual data. How is that possible to not have yeah. that data? Yeah, I mean, we've in? seen this this general pattern, which is, um, I mean, I hate to say it, but you can predict what the public health response to something will be. If it's actually promising, they don't like it, right? And that should not be a pattern. That is not a pattern that suggests error. That is a pattern that suggests some other plan. And it's uh, it's appalling. And I will just say, you know, if you want to peek into the resistance movement, you know, I, there was this very good piece, I would guess that you saw it, John Campbell put out 
a couple days ago on his channel about the actual number mm -hmm. of people in Britain, he's British, the actual number of people who died of COVID, right? And it was shocking, yep. right? But here's my point. John Campbell is absolutely welcome and on the radar of people like you and me. He's pro-vaccine. He has been very good at analyzing the data around early treatment and ivermectin, and he's been courageous about talking about it. That's what the resistance movement sounds like inside. It's people who don't have the same perspective on what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. But we are coming to agreement on what the tools of measurement are that actually work, right? In the resistance movement, everybody knows that all-cause mortality is an important thing that is rarely conveyed. We know that we want autopsies done because autopsies tell you something we can't find out otherwise, and we know that the level of autopsies has been artificially reduced, and that suggests that there is an obvious desire not to know what kind of harm is being done. So it is a big tent, right? You're going to see that big tent on the stage yep. tomorrow at this march because you have people who have arrived from, you know, as we began this discussion, they've arrived from dozens of different paths to an agreement that something has captured our focus, as you're pointing out, and it has mesmerized us into behaving in a way that is actually harming us. And, you know, waking up from that, it's not going to be fun for a lot of people. But let me tell you, the longer you wait, the less fun it's going to be. Yeah, that's that's the main point here is, look, we got to put a stop to this now. And, and the way mass psychoses or formations are stopped is with brave people standing up saying, no, let's stop. We just let's stop. And so um, speaking of which, we mentioned that, you know, every single time if, if there was something favorable, they didn't like it. Um, that data that John Campbell was talking about where they showed that there was 17,300 people in the whole COVID experience all two years had died of COVID specifically who had, or weren't otherwise you know, burdened with a, a, a comorbidity. That came out because of a Freedom of Information Act request. That data had to be pried out. And that should have been put out there and broadcast by that same organization if they were doing the right thing. Right. But instead, you have to pry it out. And every time somebody says, hey, Chris, what do you think of the CDC report? I'm like, uh, I'm going to dig into it. and It's just going to be crap, you know, um, because I know that they're going to use redefinition, statistical sleight of hand. They're going to ignore stuff. The bad study design. It's just it's just been a it's just been a horror show. I mean, this whole thing on um, natural immunity. Right. The CDC, as recently as just a week ago, when they finally admitted, oh, hey, natural immunity looks kind of cool. They were using this really ridiculously underpowered Kentucky sort of database sort of sleuthing thing where they only had 290 examples to look at. And then they held that out as like, oh, yeah, vaccines are better when we had this extraordinary million plus case count case matched cohort study out of Israel that said the opposite. Yeah. Right? So the CDC should have been there saying, oh. Here's why we don't like that study. And here's why we love. They didn't. They just put this crappy study out and everybody sent it to me like, what do you think of this? I'm like, oh, uh, just yeah, nothing, me down. nothing wakes them. And that tells you that what they are is somehow a uh, a PR outfit. Right. It's all broadcasting things. And, you know, one thing that has been just uh, right. shockingly obvious to those of us who have dug into it is the level at which what people are claiming 
as evidence pointing to the public health narrative and its prescription is based on accounting fraud, right? And, you know, you could look at one instance of it and you could say, well, maybe that's an error, right? Maybe they got the categories wrong as an error. But the number of places where they have created a definition for a category and they have shunted people into it in order to amplify certain very predictable messages, right? What's the message? The message is that COVID is very dangerous and it's killing lots of people. What's the message? It's that the vaccines are reducing harm to people, right? What's the message is that those without the vaccine are clogging hospitals. It's like they will just take anything that points in that direction and they will reorganize definitions however they have to do it to, to make that appear to be the case. And any analysis that just simply doesn't start with a, um, a presupposition about what landscape we're in sees that that's nonsense. And so you start to tune it out, right? What do you think of this latest CDC report? Well, why are you asking me that? Has the CDC gotten anything right here? I'm not aware of it, right? They've been wrong across the board. So yeah. um, at some point you tune that out and you go yeah. looking for something that isn't consistently wrong right? Something that is open to various possibilities. And you'll find that that's a very vibrant discussion. It just, you know, to your earlier point, the interesting stuff is on the fringe. Why? Because it was driven there, right? The natural people who would be at the head of the conversation of figuring out what's going on in COVID and what we do about it, those people have been driven to the edge. They've either been silenced, they've been threatened, and they've chosen to self-censor, or if they haven't been willing to self-censor, they've been driven to the edge. And so you know what? That's where you'll find them. Absolutely. Yeah, I was um, very early on. I, I really cottoned on to the whole FLCCC guys, and uh, I was helping them set up early webinars. And then I, I've been on the board for a while. And and I it's gotten a lot better since. But I remember in the dark old days, maybe, I don't know, six, eight months ago, their Facebook page would get taken down. They were getting YouTube strikes left and right and having you know channels pulled down. And they were saying nothing other than they were highly qualified medical doctors discussing data. That was it. They weren't out there railing against, you know, what they thought, you know, Pfizer was full of crooks or anything like that. There was no nothing that would rise to libel. They were very careful. And and watching that level of friction and hostility that came at them was astonishing. Never. I'd never seen anything like that before. Maybe you had in your battles. Well, but that was I mean, astonishing. It, you know, it's astonishing in a way. I'd never seen it with doctors, and there was something just impossible uh, to stomach about watching these obviously highly dedicated people who actually save lives for a living. They do it day in and day out, being treated as if they were up to something, right? I mean, it just, it couldn't possibly be more the inverse of what was happening. You had doctors trying to be doctors, trying to sort out a live situation that we've all been told is of utmost importance and being demonized for the effort because their conclusion didn't match the public health authority, which was obviously wrong. Um, and then to watch the tech sector leap to attention and start treating them as if these were somehow, you know, dangerous monsters. It was just such a, a preposterous show of force on the part of whatever the thing is that is arranging the narrative mm. that, you know, either you got it when you saw that or you didn't. And, um, yeah, I'm, yep. I'm glad those dark days are, are, are over, but, um, new dark days are coming. 
Yeah, I, I agree. So the, it's we got a little dawn coming. I mean, I do feel that the, the censorship has lightened up a bit. Now, for the march tomorrow, I'll tell you, um, there's going to be there's this march and then and then there's uh, a bunch of people speaking. So they've invested in jumbotrons and a stage and sound and all that stuff. And uh, uh, unfortunately, I won't be here to speak. That would have been fun. Uh, history moment. But um, there's a bunch of bunch of the doctors, I think, are very familiar names. And then there's going to be uh, vaccine injured people there talking who finally get maybe a, a national platform voice. I can't even imagine how awful it must be to be like the the mother of, of Maddie DeGarry, Stephanie DeGarry, and, and know that you were doing the right thing. And then as soon as things went a little wrong, like the system just basically said, we think your daughter's just nuts and no, no support. No, it's just awful. Um, but to hear from There'll be union people there, firemen. Um, uh, just it's this is this is where I think we get to see Brett, just how broad this really is because this isn't a bunch of anti-vaxxers. This is Americans who have some questions, who feel like they weren't allowed to ask those questions and that felt wrong, and they they don't want to put up with that anymore. So that's what I'm excited to see is, um, you know, that this is the beginning of something I hope, which is us finding our voice again. And yeah, saying um, enough. If I could pick up on you know? uh, a theme. There's something about watching the gaslighting of the injured, right? If this was an honest effort to control the pandemic and people had been injured because we had a vaccine that worked, it had an unfortunately high price, a certain number of people, you know, rolled the dice and it came up bad for them. We would take care of those people, right? And the point is you did this so right. that we could be safe and we could go back to life. And the point is these would be heroes. We would not be gaslighting them. We would be accepting that they were harmed. They would be getting free care for the rest of their lives for the cost that they paid on the rest of our behalf. And to watch them gaslit tells you what kind of monsters we're dealing with. The other thing that does that, for me at least, is the withdrawal of treatments that work early, right? The idea that you're going to simultaneously tell us we have this very dangerous disease as you withdraw therapies in which there is no profit, but that work, that is a level of indifference to human suffering that is almost impossible to imagine. So those two facts, if I need to think about, well, what's really going on here, I can check in with them and I can say, well, at the very least, whether this is people making a decision in a conference room or it's an emergent process, it's a monster, right? It is willing to actually literally harm people with a vaccine and then gaslight them over whether or not they were harmed. It is willing to prevent people from having medications that might protect them, might save their lives. And no process that is capable of those two things can can be defended. It's not, it's not an accident and... Uh, there is no decency to it. 